I would like Dr. Abulfadl's opinion about difficulties um, to get married for Muslim ladies who are over 30 years of age. Um, many Muslim men marry non-Muslim women, and as we know, Muslim women are only allowed to marry Muslim men. I remember Dr. Abulfadl saying that if someone doesn't pray in a couple, half of the barakah at home is lost. However, it is very difficult to be single and over 30 because there are fewer opportunities and time is flying by to have children. Also, this is often a taboo topic, but women do have desire and it is a challenge to stay away from zina and other sins. What is the doctor's advice for this situation? Yeah, um, this is a, subhanAllah, I mean, there, there is no question that this is a difficult um, topic. It's a difficult topic for men and women um, because especially when you're young and again I underscore men and women uh, sexual desire is is high uh, you know eventually you get to an age where um, the the role of sexual desire changes um, for for at least most people, but uh, in in this critical period in the twenties and in the thirties, um, men and women who want to get married to put their sexual desire where it is intended to be in halal, and they are unable to do so. Um, I think there is a big problem in the fact that Muslim men marry non-Muslim women. I, I think that's where the concept of Ummah becomes important because if you have a sense of concern and care about your Ummah, so it, you don't deal with your problems on an individual basis, but you think of yourself as part of a collectivity. I am a part of the Muslim Ummah, and I have obligations towards the Muslim Ummah. When I get my paycheck, I look at this paycheck, and I don't think this is my money. I think this is income that's coming to the Muslim Ummah. And so what do I owe the Muslim Ummah with this paycheck? When I look at my position that I occupy, every time I step in a classroom, I think of myself as a part of a Muslim Ummah. But everything I say, everything I do, I think of myself as part of a Muslim Ummah. And that I am, for better or for worse, representing the Muslim Ummah with my conduct. So I am cognizant of that. And when Muslim men just go after their own hawa, their own desires, and their own um, uh, 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 whims, and they just marry whoever, and they, they don't think about the fact that they own obligation to their ummah, that's a problem, uh, and, and it's a serious problem. My experience in in uh, now living over thirty years in the in the West 
has been great disappointment with interface marriages. I have to, to just be very clear about that. My, what I've observed is that when Muslim men marry non-Muslim women, the children do not grow up Muslim. Or they grow up with a very, very weak Muslim identity to the point that there are so many people that I've met, so many in my life, especially as a teacher. I met so many students. They're not Muslim at all. And then they tell you, oh, yes, my father is a Muslim. And they, they mention it so like, Oh, yeah, my father is from Turkey. Yeah, my father is from Syria. Yes, my father is Lebanese. And uh, yeah, you know, my, my father would do his salah. And well, did you ever learn to pray? To, to pray? No. Uh, oh, I'm not Muslim. I, you know, because the, 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 for whatever reason, when, when the mother is not Muslim, or even when the father is not Muslim. So in other words, in interface marriages, what I've noticed is that the children do not grow up. And as a result, there is a very high attrition rate among Muslims in the West. You know, people talk about how many millions of Muslims are in Europe and how many millions of Muslims are in the West generally. But the reality is, these are just statistics because the reality is a lot of these children, especially the children of, of couples where the, the mother and father do not share the Muslim faith, um, are in a very precarious situation, are in a very risky situation. Because of that, I've reached the position, I've reached the conclusion that for, in my view, it is makruh for either a man to marry a non-Muslim woman or a woman to marry a non-Muslim man. Now, makruh meaning that you are putting yourself in a position, in a doubtful position vis-a-vis -vis Allah. When does it become haram? When you are unable to raise your children as Muslim. So if I go marry a Christian woman or a, a Jewish woman or whatever. I, I marry a non-Muslim woman. When does my marriage enter into the realm of haram? It's when my children start growing up knowing nothing about Islam. Because I have an obligation. I have a duty towards these children. I have an obligation to raise them as Muslim. And when I fail to discharge this obligation... I will answer to Allah about this on the final day. Allah will say, okay, I've given you children. I'm sorry, hold on one second. Allah will say, I've given you children. Did you teach these children about me and about the true faith, about the last prophet? And if I, if I am unable to, to defend my position vis-a-vis -vis my obligations towards these children, well, I'm putting myself in a very precarious situation in the hereafter. So that, the, the, the tension here is between individual, the interests of 
the individual man or the individual woman and the obligations we owe our children. We have to recognize that women have, and there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about this, have a sexual desire. And the, for in many, many situations, this sexual desire is every bit as concrete and real and intense as the sexual desire that men have. Now, so when you advise people to persevere and not do what is haram um, and be patient, you are advising them to pursue a path which involves a lot of hardship. There is no, no question about this hardship and the sacrifices that this hardship entails. So, and, and don't think that this hardship and what it entails and your perseverance on the path is not, is not, is something that Allah fails to take, take notice of or that Allah will not reward you for. Allah will reward you for the fact that you persevered on the path even if it involved a lot of hardship. Now, more pr pragmatically or practically, so th that's in broad terms is my urging of Muslim men to look towards their community and to think of their, their, their duties and obligations towards the, men, the, the, the women of the community, the, the Muslim women and, and their needs. Okay, so second point, and this is a little bit, um, what do we do about sexual desire that it, it, when we cannot enter marriage? Well, of course there is prayer and there is fasting, which is what the Prophet recommended. Does prayer and fasting help? Yes, they help. Are they a solution? It depends on the individual. Second thing, and here is where it's a little bit a lot of fuqaha talked about whether masturbation is haram or halal. If you just want a quick reference, you can look at Fiqh Sunnah by Sayyid Sabak, who has a good discussion about it. Um, my position, I am with the school of thought that believes that masturbation is halal. There is no haram in masturbation for non-married people. A masturbation for pe married people could become a problem because it, it, it diverts sexual attention and, and, and so on and so forth. But we're not... So if you are not married and the release of that buildup, you feel that that's what you need to do 
then that's what you need to do. That's not. I, I can't tell you that that's haram. The evidence for the the uh, for someone saying that that's haram is not there. It's a it's a very uh, it's an uncomfortable topic. You know, embarrassing topic, but it's a. Uh, is that a question? Oh, no, but, but uh, of course, you know, when we talk, when, when we talk about masturbation, we're talking about istimna, which is sort of the, the, um, the way that for centuries people have talked about it. And istimna is what we today call masturbation. It, that doesn't mean use um, pornography or that, that's a different matter altogether. That's a different question. But what the opinion that I am comfortable comfortable with are jurists who said that it is it is like like going to the like having a, a build up of like when you go to the bathroom I mean you release something that has built up in the body um, beyond that. Remember that sometimes entering into a marriage, you might enter into a marriage thinking that you will get a release for your sexual tension and that to solve the problems. But a bad marriage, if you enter into a marriage with the wrong partner, sexual desire only goes so far in a marriage. You could end up in a nightmarish marriage that would turn your life into a living hell. That simply, in retrospect, and this I've seen this with so many people over the years. I mean, I can't tell you how many. They'll say, you know, the worst thing I've done is the decision to get married to this person. And, you know, when at the time we were young, I full of desire, full of passion, full of whatever, and my, this person turned my life into a living hell. When I talk about finding a partner who shares your iman, it is finding a partner that turns your home into a source of barakah, because I literally believe that household in which people pray, in which people listen to Quran, in which people read Quran, is a household which becomes aided and protected by, and you want to call it angelic energy, you want to call it an aura, you want to call it the presence of angels, you literally enter into this home and you can feel the energy of that home, one of repose and peace and beauty. A home where that is lacking is often a home that you enter and you can feel the tension in the air. And children going up in this home are often affected by this tension. And they, they go off the rails. I mean, you find these children who hate their household. They, they hate their parents' household, and they're not quite sure even why. 
quite often the reason why is because of the lack of barakah in this home. So that's what, what, I'm, I'm ta- what I was talking about when I was referring to. Uh, now, there are, it, it, this goes back again to the individual because some individuals, um, the presence of the divine in their household doesn't really matter. You know, they're, they're not close to Allah. They don't want to be close to Allah. And for these people, I have, there's nothing I can, I have nothing to say. I mean, it, it's, you choose your path in life. But ending up with a bad, in a bad marriage, believe me, no sexual desire will make it worth it. So keep that in mind, that you might be praying wholeheartedly to Allah to send you a wife or send you a husband, but you better pray to Allah to send you a blessed wife or a blessed husband because the wrong husband or the wrong wife can turn your life into a living hell. After the sexual desire is done with, you know, whether it's a day, a week, six months, a year, five years, after that is taken care of, what remains is the true quality of the household. People who end up in bad marriages, literally, their life can go completely off tracks. I can't tell you the amount of ugliness that I've seen from people who ended up in bad marriages. I mean, their entire lives are turned upside down. And in retrospect, they say, God, you know, it wasn't worth it. it, it you know, it, yes, it was fun for a week. It was fun for six months. It was fun for a year. It was fun for five years. But my entire life has been destroyed. My, my dreams have been quashed. I wanted to be this. I wanted to reach this. I wanted to achieve that. And it, because, I mean, a... a a bad spouse can just think of, for instance, how many Muslims end up in divorce court and their lives turn, become turned upside down. You do not want to end up in divorce court. One of the ugliest things that could happen to you are divorce courts and having to deal with divorce lawyers and the ugliness of the family law system, and, and just there's so many, so many Muslims like that. So praying for the barakah is not a small thing. I mean, dealing with your sexual desire as you deal with the need to go to the bathroom, I mean, I, I don't mean to, to make it sound so ugly because, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of what Allah has created in us. Uh, you know, pr- praying and fasting and, and uh, doing istimna and, and so on to, to, to deal with it are all human things. And, but if I was in your position, what I would pray for is the barakah. Allah send me a blessed spouse. Beyond that, now practical things, if you, if you live in a country that allows for polygamy, Am I diametrically opposed to, polyg- uh, uh, to polygamy? 
I think polygamy is a problem. I think that it's a problem in most cases, but sometimes it becomes a necessity if you live in a country that allows it. So, you know, do I condemn a woman that becomes a second wife to a, because she has no other options? No, I don't. If, if that is what a, the, the, is allowed within the setting that you're in. Um, I don't want to get into the topic of temporary marriages because that's, a, a, but the short of it is that I, again, I would advise you against it. Um, temporary marriages could be a, a serious problem. Um, you know, do I, do I consider it an absolute haram like a lot of Sunnis do? I can't say that. But is it, Makruh in most cases, yes, I can say that. It is something not favored in the vast majority of cases. It, each individual must seek to understand their own situations because to be, let, let's be very frank about the, the, another point. Sexual desire is not the same in all people. Sexual desire is not the same in all people. There are women, I, I mean, I actually knew several cases like that, whose, the way, their physiology, the way Allah created them, um, their sexual desire was very intense. They, they had, uh, one of them was actually diagnosed with shabak. Um, I don't know what the English word for shabak is, but it basically intense sexual desire. Um, You know, so the struggle that you had that people have to enter into varies from one individual to another. For the woman who asked this question, if I was in your position, sister, I would just insist on praying to Allah for a blessed partner. And I would use these other means I talked about as a way of persevering. Don't rush the decision of marriage because if you end up with the wrong man, they can turn your life into a living hell. Just an absolute living hell. If I was in your position, I would not marry a non-Muslim because for me, it means a great deal that I shame, share my Salah and share my Quran with my partner. For me, life becomes unlivable if my partner can't appreciate my Salah and can't appreciate my Quran. Can I generalize this on everyone? I can't. But I can tell you that this is the path that I believe is the correct one. And that's the path I would advise anyone to follow. May Allah aid you and support you. No, no. A, a mushrik, the, the question I got, what about a mushrik? A mushrik is someone who is either doesn't believe in Allah at all, or someone who um, believes in multi-gods, like someone who, a Hindu, for instance, who believes in many gods. There is a clear prohibition for Muslim men and women 
against marrying either a kafir or a mushrik. The, 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 the issue that where we enter into the realm of makruh is marrying someone who is among the people of the book. In other words, a Christian or a Jew. But marrying someone who doesn't believe in God or marrying someone who believes in a multitude of gods, many gods, uh, that, that there's a strict prohibition against that. And the evidence for that is, in my view, quite unequivocal. Uh, do not destroy your hereafter by entering into a marriage with someone who either is an atheist or someone who doesn't, who believes in a number, a multitude of gods, because the evidence for that prohibition is quite unequivocal. Everything I talked about in, in marrying non-Muslims, what I meant by that are people of the book. That's where the, 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 the discourse is about. Is that clear enough? Excellent. Is that clear? <laughs> Are your ears bothering you, or do you want to read? No. Okay. So on the same uh, theme of family, and this is actually kind of a very um, painful question, I guess, in some ways. Um, what is the point of having children? I feel so blessed by this endeavor, but what does my daughter get out of it? I don't know if this is how life works, but I imagine that bef before birth, her spirit lived in happiness with God. And then I facilitated her creation and I helped bring her to the pains, fears, and screams of life. What about her? Why did I help take her from the bliss she was in before she was born? And what about her afterlife? I worry about her existence on this earth because she will die and she will face judgment and she may face punishment. Why have I done this to her? What if she doesn't make it back to Allah and why do we have children? Hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that raises this whole very deep philosophical debate. But I'll, I'll try to, to avoid as much philosophy as I can. But... Let me get to one one core issue. There's this long debate about souls. Did souls exist in bliss with Allah before consciousness, before that moment of consciousness? To make a very long discourse short, no, there was no state of bliss. They did not exist with Allah in a state of bliss. Your daughter, her soul was created for her and placed in that body. There was no existing in bliss before the, the state of consciousness that your daughter was given or your child was given. So let's do away with that notion because... In, in old Greek philosophy, there, there was this mythology about souls existing in bliss, and then Muslims had to, you know, debated this back and forth, and and the 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 majority, the orthodox position, if you will, and and all the evidence indicates that. Listen, we our, our the 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 dynamic of soul 
Allah creates a soul from how exactly, in what way, and, and all of these are questions that we will never get an answer for. But Allah creates a soul to inhabit a body. The miracle of Allah is that from the moment of creation, Allah enters into a contract with us that now that I have created the soul, I will not simply extinguish the soul and make it evaporate. In other words, it's as if you gain an entitlement from Allah that now you've been given the soul. That soul will exist on this earth and that soul will exist after this earth. When Allah brings back the... the and how do we know that? We know it because it, Allah has entered into this agreement with us, into this covenant with us. Now, the, the part that is an old philosophical debate is since souls are created specifically in the context of the body that they inhabit, in other words, that's their first, if you will, first state of being is that they 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 exist within that shell is consciousness always a gift from an a religious perspective the answer is always yes that it's a great gift for Allah to take us from a state of Adam a state of non-being to a state of consciousness that in its life in itself is a gift Philosophically, you, you, you can read a lot of philosophers that said, well, you know, how do we know that consciousness is always a gift? Why is consciousness always a gift? Uh, you know, you, you, could, you could spend a lifetime reading the philosophers back and forth, back and forth about that. But from a religious perspective, consciousness is, is something that is a miracle in itself because it is miraculous by and everything that has consciousness for subhanallah i mean from the bird to an insect to the dogs that are barking the minute they have consciousness they fight for it i mean that's the instinct within us is that once we have consciousness we don't want to let go and in fact when people commit suicide they reach a point of um, path a, a pathological state, and it's a malady, it's an illness, where you reach a point that you no longer want the gift of consciousness. You no longer celebrate your consciousness. You no longer are keen on having it. But the vast majority of people who continue living, you know, if you try to kill them, they, don't, they fight. They don't want to die. They, they want to continue on in that state. And look at your child. You'll find that your child, now that Allah has given this child consciousness, your child doesn't want to let go. Anytime you try to even come close to robbing your child of that consciousness, your child fights for it. Um, one of the, the worst things that you see in children that are severely abused is that they become 
like vegetables. They no longer fight for the, the gift of life. They're, they're immobile. They're just impassive. And, and that's when we recognize absolute evil. It is when we get a human being to a point when they're no longer actively fighting for their life. So when you look at your child, this, if, if your child could speak and your child would only describe what you gave them as a gift. Now, but there is a very important proviso to this. Like everything that Allah gives me, it's a trust. The body that God gave me is a trust. The income that God gave me is a trust. And the children that God gave me is a trust. What do I owe these children? I owe them an obligation of happiness. I owe them the obligation to make them as happy as possible in their life, to protect them. But I also owe them the obligation to teach them what will help their salvation. So if I bring children, if I'm going to bring children to this world and I cannot teach them how to make it to Jannah, to avoid ending up in hell, then don't have children. That's my, part of my problem with uh, interfaith marriages, is that I often you know, say, can I raise these children as Muslims so that I, I, I give them a fair chance at saving their souls? And if, if the answer is, no, I'm not sure, then I have a serious problem with having children. If I'm going to bring children and I can't fairly guarantee their happiness, in other words, providing a stable, happy home, if I know my home is full of tension and, so for instance, I'm married to an abuser, then don't have children. I actually think it's a sin to have children if you're going to bring them into a home where you know your spouse is an abuser, or verbally or physically. You know, people don't take that responsibility seriously. It is the, one of the most serious things you can do in your life, is to bring a child and then fail to take care of this child in, in the proper way and have to answer for it in the hereafter. People don't give that enough thought. The decision to bring a child, of course, we don't always control this decision because, you know, quite often, regardless of what we do, I, I've had a lot of people who'd say, you know, we were on birth control and got pregnant anyway. It's Then it's Allah's will. But your obligation is happiness, protection, and salvation. You have an obligation to raise that child as a good Muslim, as a Muslim who knows their God, as a Muslim who can make it safely in this world and in the hereafter. And if you look at yourself 
and you can't you, you tell yourself I, I I cannot I'm not sure I can discharge this obligation then please don't have children don't have children don't bring children to this world and then inflict misery on them don't bring children and then not take care of them so and that is why again my problem was people who have too many children when the you know and then they can't give adequate attention to each child or a child that grows up feeling ignored you will have one of the most serious things you will have to answer for in your hereafter are your children did you take care of them physically and emotionally and spiritually now, you know, there are some people who have asked me in the past, you know, I really don't like the world we live in. Uh, I think it's a very unfair world. Is it, is, is it haram if we decide not to have children? My own position is I, I can't say it's haram for you not to have children. If you, if you make a decision that you're, you're going to be married, but you're never going to have children, um, looking at precedents from the Islamic past, and, uh, you know, we don't have the time to get into... into uh, no, it's not haram. I mean, you don't have an obligation to have children. And then, you know, you talk to some shiuch and they start reciting all the hadith about takatharu and all of that. That's a very long debate, but there's a difference between the recommendation that it is mustahab, it is recommended to have children and it's haram not to have children. There's a huge difference. So, you know, my, uh, bottom line is, if you're going to have children, think uh, if you can't take care of your children in the proper way, don't have children. Once you've had children, you owe them a great deal. You owe them physical safety, emotional safety, and spiritual safety. And you must discharge these obligations towards them. And that's a very serious obligation. Did I answer the question? Yes. I don't know. That's great. Okay. Um, so moving to more broad topics of um, Muslim. Well, okay, I'm just going to read the question. Um, I was wondering if it would be possible for the professor to give us his thoughts on the debate on perennialism. I know from the professor's material that salvation is a matter between the person and Allah, and that diversity is stated to be part of the divine plan. But I also often read that orthodox Muslim positions that lean more on the exclusivist side, citing other Quranic passages that appear like harsher condem condemnations of unbelievers. Are these positions irreconcilable or does the answer lie in an understanding of Islam as a morally and divinely engaged method of life in which belief and unbelief are to be interpreted as moral categories rather than simple tribal affiliations? Maybe you can restate that question too. Um, you know, the issue of, of, of the salvation, Muslim salvation versus salvation of others and whether islam is an exclusive method of salvation uh, or not uh, you know which is of course a very big topic a very large topic and what perennialism it's a school of thought that um so many 
of the followers of Ibn Arabi in particular and Rumi um, believe in, especially modern day followers, uh, the way that they read Ibn Arabi and they read Rumi, that uh, that there are many pathways to Allah, and there are many equally valid ways of reaching the divine, and that it is wrong for any of these ways to claim exclusivity. I don't believe in perennialism in the sense of believing that all pathways are equally valid. If that's what we mean by perennialism, then no, I, I don't adhere to that. Um, I think Islam is presumptively, presumptively for the vast majority of people who become aware of Islam is the exclusive way, the sirat al-mustaqim, the straight path to Allah. Now, there are people who are called in fiqh Ahl al-Fitra, or Ahl al-Fatra, sorry, Ahl al-Fatra, which means the people who never got an opportunity to learn Islam. How will Allah judge them? And the answer is Allah is absolute just. Allah is absolutely just. Now, what does the absolute justice entail in the hereafter? If I claimed I know, then I would be claiming divinity. So that for an absolutely just God, how is that God going to judge the kind deeds, the, the, the humane deeds, the moral deeds of people who never had an opportunity to follow the path of Islam? Because either because they never learned about Islam or they were or they were never taught any valid valid Islam or or because Muslims didn't do their their job in teaching Islam whatever. What will that justice entail? I don't know what that justice will entail. But what I am sure of is Allah is absolutely just. Allah is incapable of injustice. Now, my sense is, my fitra is, my fitra is, is that for a just God, God is not going to ignore the, 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 the kind deeds, the moral deeds of people who never have had an opportunity to follow the path of Islam. So that, that's, that's one thing. The other thing. Presumptively, the straight path to Allah and the exclusive path to Allah is Islam. Does this mean that the kind and moral deeds of Christians or Jews or, or, or Baha'is or whatever um, are all in hellfire? 
I can't say that. All I can tell you is this is an this is a just God, a God incapable of injustice. Why? Because God decreed that upon God's self, absolute justice. Furthermore, I can tell you that this is a very merciful and compassionate God. But I do not dare step into the, into the shoes of the divine and tell you, well, God will forgive your sins and you will go to heaven, or that God is going to send you straight to hell. What I can tell you is, what God wants from you is to follow Islam, to believe in Muhammad as the final prophet, to believe in all the prophets, from Adam to Muhammad, to believe that the Quran is Allah's word, to worship Allah do, doing those five times a day or performing the, the five salah a day, to, to, to follow the five pillars of Islam. That is what Allah wants from you, and that is what Allah wants from any human being on the face of this earth. Those who do not do that, I can tell you that you're in a risky category. But can I tell you that you are going to go to hellfire? Absolutely. I, I, that, that, that is something. And that's a huge difference between the arrogant um, uh, uh, usurpation of divinity that you see among certain Christian the theologies and Jewish theologies and Islamic theology. In Islamic theology, a God is God is God, and humans are humans, and humans can't make these presumptive and uh, presumptuous decisions about what God will or will not do, other than to say God is absolutely just, and God is merciful, and God is compassionate, and sometimes the justice of God means punishment. If if Allah knows that you could have, that the reason you did not become Muslim is because you didn't want to do five prayers a day. You didn't want to bother. Is Allah going to treat you the same as someone who went through the pain of doing their prayers their entire life? Think about it from the, from the perspective of justice. If you had, Allah knows what is inside of you, and you had every plausible reason to believe in Muhammad as the final prophet of Allah, but you didn't do so because you were racist, because you didn't want to follow an Arab, let's say, or because you saw your, you were comfortable with your cultural superiority, because you saw yourself as part of the or because you, you enjoyed gospel in church and singing and dancing, and singing and dancing mattered so much to you that you didn't want to abandon that. What will that entail in the scales of justice? I don't know, other than to tell you again, what Allah expects from us is to follow the one and only straight path of truth, and that is the path of Islam. All other paths are not equal paths to the truth. That's the difference between me and perennialism. I do not believe that there are any equal... 
any alternative pass is an equal pass. But what will that unequal pass entail in Allah's absolute justice? Is it, will it be punishment or forgiveness? I don't know. My Muslim heart, for those who are moral human beings, prays that Allah forgives them. When I see people who are very decent human beings, but they refuse to be a Muslim, and I have friends like that. They have every reason to be a Muslim, but they're not. But they're very decent human beings. I honestly, my, my prayer, my dua is Allah, please forgive them. Now, does that mean Allah will forgive them? I don't know. No. You know, I, I don't know. I can't even speculate. But, my, but there are others who I don't do a dua for that Allah would forgive them. Because I see their conduct and their behavior as ugly and immoral. And if Allah punishes, punishes them, I, my, 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 my incomplete and very limited concept of justice tells me that they deserve punishment. And if they, you know, if, if, I, if they get it in the hereafter, so be it. They, there is a, there is a diff, believing in the truth and at the same time what that truth tells you teaches you is that you worship a just God and what justice will entail we human beings anyone who's who worked on law knows the extent to which human beings are incapable of achieving justice. I mean, justice is the hardest thing for the human mind. We, 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 we solve a problem here, another problem springs up on the other side. We deal with this problem, a parallel problem pops up in the... In, in the justice is so hard. So when... I think of a d justice at a divine scale. It is something that I must admit is beyond my comprehension. I just have a sense of it, but I cannot comprehend it. Is that okay? I mean, because we, this is something you know, we could spend hours on because perennialism uh, you know I don't know if it's still as popular as it used to be but um, you know I've, I've entered in these long debates in the past when I was younger with people about perennialism who were followers of Sayyid Hussein Nasr or followers of uh, certain Sufi orders and and you know the, 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 the way to, to deal with Islam as if it's just a your preference among equally valid ways is flawed. It's flawed theologically, it's flawed philosophically, it's flawed at so many different levels, in my opinion, in my opinion. Um, but at the same time, I, I just, I don't have the gall to tell people you're going to, to, to go, go, go to hellfire. All I can say is Allah is just, and I can tell you if your behavior has, in my according to the standards that I've been taught by Allah, 
by Allah's revelation. Uh, someone who's doing committing injustice, I'll tell you, you are going to pay for this injustice in, 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 with a just God. It, 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 my sense of justice is you're not just going to get scot-free with all the sins you've committed. And at the same time, uh, you know, I can't just say God is going to ignore all the, the good deeds that human beings commit. That's not my, my place. So just as a couple of questions that were raised, and I think it's just to put a finer point on the idea that it's not about the label, but the actual justice, the, the, the real substantive justice and substantive action of people that God will judge with true justice. Uh, so one person said, well, doesn't Allah say in the Quran that whoever sur surrenders to God and does good deeds will be successful, even if there are Jews or Christians? And another question, what if one uses his or her reasoning and without arrogance comes to the conclusion that Islam is not a true religion? Why should one get punished for this? Yeah, well, there, there are two, what Allah says in the Quran, Allah, yes, Allah says that in the Quran, but Allah also says, uh, the, the Quran is, is a multi-layered book. And, you know, we, we can't take one revelation out of context. Um, because Allah also says, uh, you know, whoever follows a religion other than Islam, it will not be accepted from him. Uh, Allah also says that uh, uh, those who do not turn, th those who do not follow the, the, the Prophet wasalam, that Allah will come to all their deeds and make it like, um, uh, uh, like um, basically evaporate all their deeds in thin air. So, Allah speaks in, in a multi-layered voice in the Quran. And what you, all these years of studying the Quran has led me to the conviction that what Allah teaches us in the Quran is that you want the straight path, Islam is the straight path. But at the same time, understand that, I, that this is an absolutely just God. What that entails, what does absolute justice entail, is a very complex issue. Okay. So, that, that, but the, that other point about, um, you know, um, a long time ago, I, I was on a panel with Houston Smith. Um, this was here in, in Los Angeles. And Houston Smith, someone like Houston Smith, for instance, um, who could have been Muslim, but is not Muslim. Um, and Houston, someone like Houston Smith has always fascinated me because from everything I read by him, from what I heard from him, um, uh, he seems like an eminently reasonable human being and a decent, decent human being. But he's not Muslim. And from everything that I can tell, that he's had every opportunity to study Islam. Now, Is Allah going to punish him? Is he going to be in, in hellfire for not being Muslim? 
there is a big difference between telling Houston Smith, as I told him, I think that you are wrong not to follow Islam. And telling Houston Smith, you are going to go to hell because you didn't follow Islam. There's a huge difference. So in that, it's one and only opportunity that I had to meet the man. When asked, do you believe that it's wrong not to be a Muslim? My answer is yes, it's wrong not to be a Muslim. And I said it to in, in, right there to Eustace Smith, right in his face. And he knows that that's my position. And he respects that position because as a Muslim, that's my position. But is a just God going to send Houston Smith to hellfire? I sincerely hope not. What, my, 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 what I have absolute trust in is Allah's justice. My understanding of justice is that I pray to Allah, Allah, please forgive if your scales of justice, which I don't comprehend, entail punishment for Houston Smith, Allah, please forgive him. Why? Because he's a very decent human being. So yes, he had every opportunity to learn Islam. Am I going to be more just than God? That's impossible. So now there's a big difference in my view between someone like Houston Smith and Hans Kung. Houston Smith wrote about Islam, and what he said about Islam is eminently fair. Hans Kung, on the other hand, seems to be bigoted and twisted despite his wonderful philosophical intellectual brain, because he wrote a huge book that not many Muslims have read about Islam. Will I pray that Allah forgives Hans Kung for his failure, to, for his misunderstandings of Islam? No, I won't do that. Do I care whether Allah punishes him or not? I don't. I don't busy myself. I don't occupy myself with the issues of hellfire and, and, and reward and punishment. I only care about what is within my jurisdiction. And within my jurisdiction is an understanding of truth versus what is false. So when I read Hans Kung, I, tell, I, I have a million responses to the things he said about Islam and why he thinks Christianity is the correct path and Islam is not. How, what will that entail in God's justice? Well, only God knows what is inside the man. What if, Allah knows what, is make, what makes his insides tick. I don't, and you don't. And anyone that claims that they do, they, they, they're, they're lying. Take someone like Karen Armstrong. How many Muslims would like to see Karen Armstrong in hellfire? No. <laughs> Not many. I mean, and if, if you do, there's something wrong with you. Or take someone like John Esposito, who has defended Islam again and again and again. It's just, you know, what is a, a, a good, decent Muslim 
would not like to imagine a Karen Armstrong in Hellfire or a John Esposito in Hellfire or a Houston Smith in Hellfire and so on and so forth. So people, busy yourself with our incomplete and our, our within our jurisdictions, the task we were given, the task we were given is to understand Islam as a path to truth. And for me, having studied everything that I've studied, I can comfortably defend the idea of why Islam is the exclusive path to truth. But as an exclusive path to truth, that doesn't preempt or in any way usurp or in, infringe upon the, the, the realm of divine justice. And that's where a lot of people go wrong, is that they don't want to accept the idea, and that's where a lot of people misunderstand Ibn Arabi, for, for instance. And in my opinion, understand, misunderstand Rumi. I have no doubt that Rumi believed that Islam was the true path, with all the, the poetical flair. But the difference is Ibn Arabi and Ibn Rumi, uh, and Rumi were not going to say understood the notion of divine justice and what divine justice entails and that it's just God loves what is beautiful wherever it manifests and that's a very that's a completely different issue God is beautiful and just in every context and in every realm and by the way this is precisely why I believe Islam is, is, the, is, the, is the exclusive path to truth. Because no other faith leverages me to believe in divine justice the way I do. Christianity makes divine justice this, this remarkably tribal thing where I have to accept Jesus Christ as a, the, the savior and as having died for, for our sins. And that becomes the only path to salvation, the only path to salvation and the only path to divine justice. Judaism turns it into an Israelite thing and it has become tribalized a long, long, long time ago. Where it... it <laughs> The idea that there is, any, the, the, and even the idea of salvation in Judaism is, is very complex. I mean, that's the whole thing. But you basically have to become part of the Israelite tribe. Buddhism and Hinduism are a, a different ballgame. But in terms of monotheistic faith, and, and different ballgame meaning, and, and again, they, they have their own problems. Because the idea of salvation itself is very problematic in, in in, in the whole reincarnation paradigm and so on. But Islam is the only theology that empowers me to believe in a God's beauty and God's justice and God's absolute mercy. And, so, and, and that is precisely why it's the exclusive path.
every other faith you are going to believe in, other than Islam, is going to take you to an area that is tribal and that is narrow-minded and with blinders on because it, 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 it makes all other religions make God the captive of human limitations, of human concepts of justice, of human concepts of beauty. The, can, the, 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 the human being imagines justice to be a particular paradigm or another, and or imagines beauty to be a particular paradigm or another, and then imprisons the divine within, within that human conceptualization. But not so is Islam, and exclusively so. And that is why I believe Islam is the path. Because you have to do an enormous amount of arm twisting to make Christianity what S.E. Lewis or what Houston Smith, huh? C.S. Lewis. Lewis, or what Houston Smith have made Christianity. I respect their efforts. I mean, I understand their efforts. But it's an, a great amount of arm twisting. You know, to, to, to turn Christianity into this religion that believes in, in, a, in, a, in a God that is absolutely just and, and a God that is beyond dying for our original sin and, and beyond the, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and beyond all of that. Well, with Islam, you don't even have to do the arm twisting. I I want to tell you. I mean, some I I don't think I've ever said this in to people before, because um, you you'll find if you go back to recordings of the the million halakas I've done and the million lectures, and you'll find me talking about various things that have to do with this topic, but. Um, but when was it that we met Chris Chris Hedges? Um, uh, end, of, uh, end of 2018. When we went to when we did the talk with Noam Chomsky. Yeah, so, but to 2018, we we met Chris Hedges. I had a lecture with him, and then we we had a chance to get you know just chat with him and so on. And I, I was very impressed by this man. I mean, it struck me as a very moral human being who does a lot um, fighting for justice and fighting for what's right. And that night, after I prayed Isha and I was doing my dua, I wholeheartedly from from the bottom of my heart, prayed to Allah to reward him and to ha- have to, to deal with him through mercy and compassion and love. In other words, it's often that happens it, it, that I meet very decent human beings, and my response is often to pray two rak'ahs and do du'a for them. I don't do du'a that they become Muslim. <laughs> I mean, 
the I, for me it's not a it's not an issue that's not the issue but what my dua is for is that is for their well-being in the hereafter because i admire people who fight for the just cause and the right causes and there are many muslim who for me, for me are not worth the name I mean, they're, they're Muslim by, by name only, but their morality is not the morality of Islam. Their ethics is not, are not the ethics of Islam. So but that does not in any way m mitigate or otherwise compromise my belief in Islam as the path of truth. But salvation is... And hellfire is a different matter. That is subject to divine justice. And divine justice is absolute. And it's beyond my, my, even my, my attempt to comprehend. <clears throat> okay. So before we get started, I just wanted to say um, a couple of things. Um, on, I noticed that on the YouTube um, live comments, I think that there is a limit of 200, and we went over 200. So I was trying to say something on it, and I noticed that I couldn't send my message through. I could be wrong. I, I don't know the technology that well. But so um, somebody had asked that if we could do another Q&A um, during Ramadan, and so I asked the professor. He said yes, so we can try to schedule another one for a week from today, inshallah. So um, we'll do it at the same time, Saturday, 4 o'clock. Um, and so if you have any questions, then definitely email me um, at grace at usuli.org. Um, and I, I wanted to also just comment, not to embarrass anybody, but somebody made a comment on the live chat um, issuing, a, I mean, jokingly issuing a fatwa that temporary marriage is okay as long as you um, have contraception. And, you know, I just wanted to point out that, you know, Dr. Abu Fadl had said that you know, obviously temporary marriage is very problematic. So uh, if you have a specific question about temporary marriage, then definitely send it through so we can address it. Because I, I don't feel like it's right to address something that weighty and that serious in a comment, you know, on a YouTube chat. So, you know, not, not to embarrass anyone, but this is something that we definitely want to handle in the right way. So please, I do want to encourage you to feel free to send that message. So um, anyway, uh, so I'll send out, you know, an email and put postings on social media just to let people know that we'll do we'll do that again. And I think Aid is supposed to be Sunday, right? So this will be the day before Aid. So that'll be good, inshallah. Um, okay, so we're at about five to seven. So um, the, the questions are now getting longer and weightier. So we'll try to hit hit two if we can. Um, so this one is actually a question about halal meat um, versus um, eating meat of um, al-kitab. I'm going to read the, the question, but you know, feel free, obviously, to address this issue because we do get a lot of questions about eating halal and also you know, with the impact on the environment and being vegan and all of these kinds of questions and animal cruelty that all sort of mix into this idea. So, um, but th this particular question doesn't cover that, that broad list of issues. Um, Salam, I hope this message finds you well. Um, I come from Zimbabwe. All of our teachers and sheikhs were from the Indian subcontinent. 
Um, they're very strict on halal meat. And um, as an adult, only as an adult did I find out about the verse in Surah Maida, where Allah says the food of believers is halal for you. I have now married a girl um, from the UK. She's of Iraqi background. Um, she's practicing, but she eats beef, lamb, and chicken from anywhere. This was a huge shock to the system, but the more I look at it, um, it seems like a rational idea and that there's a concession given by Allah in the Quran. Can you please advise, um, advise uh, what Sheikh's opinion is on this matter? Um, and yeah, so that's that's the essence of the question. Yeah, you, you know, the um, on the mention of Zimbabwe, I've noticed that in um, in areas in Africa and also in some areas in Asia um, where colonialism has supported uh, prostitutization and evangelism and led to um, widespread conversions. Uh, there develops a great deal of sensitivity between the native Muslim populations and um, and others, because Muslims struggle to, to preserve their identity. And part of the struggle to preserve identity becomes this issue of halal meat. So the, the, this is not the first time um, where it, it, the, you know, it becomes so much so that you, you can only consume the meat of fellow Muslims to the point that it, the, the, there's a sense that if you, if you violate this law, it becomes a kabira, it becomes a major sin. Um, so I'm just, this is just part of the cultural context to it. Someone from Iraq, the, the, uh, as the question says, the spouse, would be less sensitized to that because a lot of Arabs who grew up in Muslim countries, that issue is not about identity, and so it's not as much of a big deal to them. Okay, so basically, the the whole notion is, yes, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, it explicitly says that the, the animal slaughtered by Ahl al-Kitab, by people of the book, is halal. Furthermore, to to summarize a very long debate, the 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 debate is has to do with the way that an animal is slaughtered, slaughtered in a, in in such a fashion that the blood pours out of the body and leaves the body entirely, um, and also that the animal is not killed uh, through means like suffocation or battering on the head so that uh, in the Philippines, for instance, a long time ago, someone, there was an issue because the way they would kill animals is that they would club them on the head. Um, so it is clear that when the Quran is referring to the meat of Ahl kitab it is referring to the fact that Ahl kitab the people of the book would slaughter their animals 
according to a way that was very close to what Muslims did. In other words, it would not involve animals that were killed by, you know, being clobbered on the head or being suffocated or being strangled or being... Um, the, the issue that comes up all the time or the, the fiqhi issue, the juristic issue, is what presumption do you act upon when you do not have specific knowledge? So let's say I am in Chinatown and I see animals that are killed, as I've actually seen, where the chickens, they're hanging, they've been killed, and I could clearly see that the neck has been broken, that there have been no ritualistic slaughter. Here, I have affirmative knowledge that this animal was not slaughtered properly. Then I cannot consume that meat. So when I was in Chinatown, and I, I would not eat their chicken because I can tell from, from visual knowledge that the animals have, been not, have not been slaughtered properly. But the issue that arises in jurisprudence is the presumption where you don't have specific knowledge. So I am in a, a country that has a majority Christian population or a country that has a majority Jewish population. And I read and I see meat. It's in the supermarket. I don't know how this animal was killed. I don't have specific knowledge. Can I presume, because I am in a Christian, majority Christian country, or a majority Jewish country, can I presume that this meat is halal on the condition that when before I eat the meat, I say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, usami alayh. So the the it's this is all contingent on tas on tas Bismillah that you you mention Allah's name, you say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim before you eat it. So. Can I presume that it is halal in the absence of concrete and specific knowledge? And the answer given by a whole group of jurors was yes. That you can presume it to be halal. And that is the entire debate about halal versus non-halal, whatever that is. that the, a group of people say, well, you yes, you don't have specific knowledge, but you have enough knowledge to be suspicious that this this meat has not been slaughtered properly. Therefore, you have a duty to refrain from consuming this meat until further notice. The other school of thought says no, you don't have specific knowledge. Therefore you can presumptively consume the meat as long as you say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim before you eat it. That is what the debate is about. So this fellow from Zimbabwe, you know, the, the, is consuming, you know, is this an issue that would make a difference between, a, a, you know, whether it, 
it makes you a kafir or, or a not kafir? Of course not. That, that's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about whether it is haram or not haram. Okay, now there's a further problem that we have with the meat industry in our world today. And that is cruelty to animals. Why is it that we can consume the meat of animals? One, by, the permi- by Allah's permission, by Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We, what, we cannot kill an animal and eat the animal unless we activate, we enact the permission given to us by God. Because, but for that permission, but for Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, we, we are not allowed to consume anything. That is that has flesh. So that's one. Second is that the Islamic method of slaughter and the Jewish method of slaughter and Jewish law, which is very similar, it severs the nerves in in one slice. The the, the knife has to be very sharp. And you have to cut in a certain spot so that the animal does not suffer pain. And that the nervous system of the animal is disabled immediately so that the animal doesn't suffer pain or fear or so on and so forth. So in other words, mercy. So what do we do about the cruelty of the modern meat industry? Where, you know, the, the animals are... are, are, are fed hormones and not allowed to graze, not allowed to move. We, we see horrible pictures of horrible suffering and so on. I have had, uh, the more I learned about the animal industry, the more my conscience has become unsettled. And I feel it is not right to support this industry. So the more I have turned to um, uh, 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 the, the uh, what do you call that? The plant-based. Yeah, a plant-based type meat. I, I, I just feel that even if I say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, even if I, I, I just know too much about cruelty to animals in the meat industry, is my attitude different when I know, so we went somewhere and in a restaurant and that restaurant made a point to say that the lamb that they had uh, was, I forgot like how they indicated it, but it, it, it was lamb that had grazed. Yeah, like free range. Yeah, free range. Uh, free range. Um, um, it was extremely expensive. I mean, so it's something that you can't afford, you know, you can afford maybe once in a lifetime. It was a, a very expensive dish. Um, so apparently, just because it's free range, then it costs a lot of money. But my, my conscience was more at ease. So, to, to, now, so can you follow, you know, can you do as your wife does and just... As long as you say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim and, and consume this meat, especially in non-Muslim countries, the answer is yes. I mean, you, you 
I can't tell you that you would be committing a sin as long as you say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim before you consume. It, but there is enough of a shubha, there is enough of doubt about the way animals are treated in the modern industry that I would tell you, and I would tell your wife as well, you know, start thinking about alternatives and ways of avoiding supporting this inhumane industry. Um, because I would be very worried that in the hereafter, I would be asked about the inhumanity that the animal suffered and that I wouldn't have a response. And I don't think telling Allah that I had a craving for meat will cut it. Also, maybe if you could speak to the environmental impact, right? Because the like the grazing, you know, like how much. Yeah, I mean, of course, we we read uh, and I've, I've read things about the um, uh, the gas emissions of the the way we uh, of um, I'm uh, I'm tired, so and um, the words are not coming to me. It's what is it called? The carbon dioxide emission. Yeah, carbon dioxide emission, like the percentage. What is the, the percentage from animals? I don't remember. Yeah, apparently that the the meat industry also contributes to pollution, and um, I think as Muslims we have an affirmative obligation to to fight this and to combat. Um, I mean, destruction of the environment is, is a very grave sin, and it is very un-Islamic. I mean, it is far more un-Islamic than wearing nail polish. I wouldn't <laughs> worry about nail polish, but I would worry about what we're doing to the environment and how we're treating animals. Um, it, 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 you know, of course, it, we think of things like pollution and animal treatment as these huge unmanageable problems in, in, in relative to the amount of power that we have in the world. But at least the consciousness to resist injustice must be there. And you do what you can within your space. I, what I would expect from a Muslim who is very influential in the business world is different from what I would expect a Muslim that, you know, makes $20,000 a year and um, uh, lives within those means. So, anyway, let's move, because we're, we're going to run out of time. Okay, so last question um, has, <clears throat> has to do with Muslim identity. It's a, it's a good question to end on for today. Um, so it's three parts, community and identity. In a society where Muslims are a numerical minority and in a time of widespread nationalism, individualism, Islamophobia, and sectarianism, how does one construct a Muslim identity that is both unifying and sensitive to ethnic, social, cultural, and historical diversity among Muslims? What is the difference between being a Muslim and proclaiming a Muslim identity, or is there any difference at all? And what is the role, function, and purpose of the community in the age we live in? Or Ummah, in the purpose of the community or the Ummah in the age we live in? 
well, listen, th there's a difference between ummah and community. That, that's the, the first part that we... Um, ummah is a symbolic construct. The collectivity of Muslims. Having a sense of belonging to fellow Muslims. In other words, the issues, the problems that confront fellow Muslims having a sense of of at least at the emotive level uh, a, a sense of unified sense of of concern care and concern is core and i think that's the part that has been de deconstructed and that unfortunately we've lost so being a good muslim and not worrying about the plight of muslims in kashmir is unacceptable being a good Muslim and not worrying about what Muslims are going through in, in, in India's uh, nationalistic Hindu government is unacceptable. Being a good Muslim and not worrying about the Muslims of Palestine and Jerusalem is unacceptable. Being a good Muslim and not worrying about the plight of Muslims in China is unacceptable. Being a good Muslim and not worrying about the Muslims in Rohingya is unacceptable. The, the whole notion of ummah is premised on the idea that what affects Muslims anywhere affects me personally. So that is the core and heart of the ummah, is that my heart is with you, and to the extent possible, I will help in any way I can. If Allah puts me in any position in which I can help, I will help. So if, if I become a member of Congress, for me to ignore the plight of Muslims in Palestine, or the Muslims in, in Syria, or the Muslims in Africa, or the Muslims in wherever, it's unacceptable. That is what the core of an ummah is. What, the way that the ummah translates is that when I donate money, for instance, I don't donate just to Egyptians. I don't donate just to my people. All Muslims are my people. And so my donations, my, my heart moves with Muslims wherever they suffer. And whenever I can help, I help. That idea of ummah is core to our identity. Because without that, then the fabric of identity and belonging becomes undone. Then, and eventually, Islam becomes just this, this completely abstract concept which can mean different things in different places and different times and, and, and no one is sure what Islam means anymore. Because we, at a core, don't have this asabi, as Ibn Khaldun calls it, this, this, um, uh, this, this, I, not nationalism, but the, the, this patriotism towards each other. Being a patriot towards a Muslim ummah is essential. Okay. Now, beyond that, we must admit that as Muslims, we have cultural differences. And we also have theoretical abstract differences. 
the realm of differences in the modern context that I can fully tolerate are differences that preserve the unity of Muslim identity, that preserve the core notion, concept of justice in Islamic theology. In other words, that maintain Islam, that recognize Islam as a theology of liberation to humanity. A theology at its very core is that we don't worship fellow human beings, we worship Allah. That our the only sovereign among us is Allah. None of us are sovereign as human beings, but sovereignty exclusively belongs to Allah. As long as you accept that theological premise, I can build bridges with you as a fellow Muslim that belong to the same community of faith. Now, beyond that, I am willing to recognize all types of differences in school of thought. Some Muslims will be more conservative. Some Muslims will be less so. Some Muslims will insist on praying Salat uh, al-Taraweeh, 14 rak'ahs. Some Muslims will pray seven rak'ahs. Some, some Muslims will wear nail polish. Some Muslims will not wear nail polish. Some Muslims will, you know, insist on this way in Salah, some Muslims will not. I, and not only that, I am willing to recognize them as schools of thought. And they no way take away. And that's part of the issue is that, you know, we, we uh, Muslims, um, um, Grace was just told me recently about some argument she had about dogs. For us to to become hostile to each other over these juristic different interpretive differences is extremely sad. It's extremely sad because we, could, we must be able to disagree about dogs and still feel as Muslim brother and sister. And as long as you are ba- you're basing your, your, you know, that, that is your interpretive paradigm within the divine. And I would respect and to defer to your right to follow your school of thought. But what is core, what is core is that you do not corrupt the heart and pulse of Islam as a religion that, of liberation, that, as a faith that liberated human beings from worshipping fellow human beings to worshipping Allah and only Allah, Allah as a sovereign, and that you do not empty Islam of its fundamental concern with justice and equity among human beings. In other words, you know, if if your form of Islam is an Islam that tolerates injustice, and that uh, basically turns Islam into a ritualistic practice. Uh, you know, do your five prayers and uh, don't worry about the amount of racism in the world. Don't worry about the amount of unfairness on the world. Don't worry about colon- colonialism. Don't worry about the... It, 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 you know, that 
that is a, it's such a, 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 a corruption of Islam that there is where my tolerance of schools of thought is truly tested. And where I, you know, where I define the parameters and the borders of what I recognize as belonging to a single ummah. So, rekindling and reconstructing the importance of our fidelity to one another as Muslims is essential. And coalescing around the core ideas of justice and liberation for humanity is essential. Islam is not just a face of about rituals and what rituals you have to do. If you are a Muslim, you have to believe in the promise of just of divine justice that there is a supreme to this world that this world belongs to the supreme and that supreme obligated us to work toward justice told us you work leave the results to me don't worry about whether your, your your fight for justice is going to be successful or not don't worry about whether you're going to be able to end racism or not don't worry about whether you're going to be able to end oppression or not your job is to fight oppression your job is to stand up for what is, is just and humane and right and beautiful. That is your job. The results are to me. That's what God's sovereignty means. That, as a core unifying, identifying concept, is what can unite us all as Muslims and identify us all as belonging to one and the same. The biggest danger that I see to us right now, you know, whether you call it al-Jamiyya, al-Madkhaliyya, the theology, the, the theology or the type of Sufism that is supported by the Emirat and which basically restores the, the, the theology of Irja, restores the theology of Islam is not about right and wrong, uh, right and wrong is really for God to judge in the final day. Islam is not about who knows what justice is. Islam is not about uh, human freedom or liberation or, or, or any core moral concepts. I see that as a serious, serious danger to Islam because it empties Islam of its spirit. It, it basically makes Islam a religion without spirits. It secularizes Islam to the extreme. Islam becomes a, a secular faith because what's going to empty, what's going to fill that void? If, if you empty Islam of its morality and ethics, there will be a void in morality and ethics. What's going to fill it? Materialism, secularism, pragmatism. If you create a moral void, it will be filled. Study history. Anyone that have claimed agnosticism, oh, I am an agnostic. No. What will happen is the sociology of life. What will happen is that your agnosticism is going to be filled by prevailing value systems of pragmatism and materialism and nationalism and every ism in the world. 
And that's a serious problem. If you don't take hold of your morality affirmatively and construct your ethical being in an affirmative way, in in a positive, dynamic way, then you create a passive void. So when I hear Muslims, basically, I'm basically an agnostic. No, then you're basically not a Muslim. You know, you may you may do salah, you may do fasting, you may do whatever, but you you don't understand what Islam is. And for me, for me personally, my my incomplete sense of justice. Someone who has a strong ethical being that is closer to Islam. You know, these people who are Muslim, but in 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 substance, but not but don't realize they're Muslim. They're closer to me than these agnostic Muslims that that don't care about justice. To me, they are closer to the essence of divinity than someone who... So, it is incumbent on us when Allah tells us, when Allah tells us, Allah waliyu allazina amanu Allah, those who who follow Allah follow a a a it's a heavy or weighty covenant. When Allah tells us that being with Allah is being against taghut, taghut is oppression. When Allah tells us being with Allah is coming out of darkness to light and being away from Allah is going from light to darkness, we have to aggressively understand the ethics of that. And that becomes a unifying core for the formation of Muslim identity. What are Muslims about? Muslims are about just causes. And just causes pits them against the corruptions of power. For me, that is the heart and core of Islam. What being a Muslim is. I, I, you know, this is a topic that I, I know will, will, you know, I'll talk about forever and will come back. I mean, in many ways, all my khutbas in the, since I started giving khutbas are about that central theme. And my everything that I've taught and everything that I continue to teach is that heart and core. Because for me, when you say, Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad rasulullah when, when you say that, you are making a commitment to justice and beauty and ethics. You are making a commitment to being a virtuous human being, to living in virtue, to embodying virtue. And I can tell you, virtue is not about these symbolic things. Virtue is not about what you wear. Virtue is not how you appear. Virtue, virtue is beauty. You embody beauty in all its complexity and all its nuances. That has to be an affirmative goal. That has to be like a cause that we declare and pursue and, and, and fight for and represent Islam through. Okay? Thank you. Okay, Maghrib is about in 10 minutes, right? Okay, yes. 
Okay, iftar mubarak, everyone. May Allah accept your fasting and bless you always. Inshallah, and hopefully we'll see you Friday for the khutbah. And um, Saturday, same time, same place, same bat channel for the next Q&A. So we'll see you next week, inshallah. Okay, thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum, everybody.